Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm going to be talking to Bernadette Del Ciero, uh, Executive Director of the California Solar and Storage Association, about the role that consumer-owned battery storage played in California's recent, uh, we'll call it a, a power crisis. Uh, welcome to the interview, Bernadette. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, this is a problem that's been plaguing California for a number of years. Last year, we saw blackouts. It was it was much worse. It's caused by drought and and a heat a heat wave affecting not just California but other states around it, where you know with whom it would normally be trading electricity when it needed it, and there just wasn't enough. And but this time around, California seems to have scraped by. And battery storage played a big role in that. Can you give us kind of an overview of the role of uh, consumer-owned battery storage actually did play? Yeah, I think what's really exciting, I think the headline is for us, is to point out that even though we're just getting started with deploying and uh, promoting behind-the-meter sun-charged batteries or energy storage charged by solar panels, um, we in the aggregate have built the largest battery in the world. So the largest battery in the world right now is in garages all throughout California, specifically 80,000 uh, garages. And in the aggregate, when added together and deployed reliably, the way we know energy storage is and, and can be, it played a major role last week in helping keep the lights on in California. We crunched the numbers and conservatively estimate that these aggregated um, home batteries uh, discharged um, 300 more than, but at least 340 megawatts of capacity at, you know, in total. So at any given time, we were able to deploy 340 megawatts. If you stretch that out across a couple of hours, you know, you can do the math, uh, more than 600 megawatt hours. But the point is, that's bigger than a natural gas power plant. And that is all invested in and in, 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 um, financed uh, through private dollars, but provided a major value to the grid. Right. And we should point out that the uh, other batteries, because utilities use uh, battery storage as well, uh, it now totals three gigawatts. Uh, what is uh, California's uh, power generation capacity in gigawatts? So California on a normal hot day, a normal summer, summer day, um, our total, our peak load peaks out around 30 gigawatts, so 30,000 megawatts. On a, an extremely hot day like what we had last week on September 6th, we peaked out at a record 51,000 megawatts or 51 gigawatts. So it's a lot of electricity and it's going to only go up from here as temperatures rise, but also equally important as California seeks out electrification strategies as a way to reduce our use of fossil fuels, we're going to have more and more uh, need for electricity and a bigger demand on the grid. Um, 
which again underscores the need to make sure that we are investing in other technologies and other solutions uh, to keep the lights on. So the the consumer owned batteries, and these could be in 80,000 garages, as you say, it could be small businesses, medium sized businesses, it could be, you know, who have solar panels up on their commercial, the roof of their commercial building. Uh, and they only make up anywhere, if I'm doing my math correctly, between one and 4%, depending on what your peak load is. But it that seems to be the the critical uh uh, capacity needed to get uh, to help California avoid a blackout. And you were telling me before we started the interview that when California has to pay, you know, when demand is at its peak and it's it has to pay enormous amounts of money uh, for, you know, small amounts of power. Can you tell us, give us a, a little bit of the data, please? Yeah, I mean, I think what's important to notice, California's grid lives and dies by these peak events, and they always happen in the summer. Um, the rest of the year, we have more than enough uh, electricity generation uh, to meet to meet our load. So this these these few hours out of the year in these extreme situations, which are becoming, of course, more frequent with climate change, are what we build our entire grid for. That's a lot of fixed costs that go into um, infrastructure that's you know unused. It's unused for a lot of the year. Um, California, in addition to that, then when we're faced with these extreme rare events like what happened last week, we go out on the spot market and we pay through the nose for electricity. We paid. We just did an analysis that shows we paid an additional four hundred and fifty million dollars. We being ratepayers spent an additional $450 million compared to a normal hot summer day last week on September 6th. So in one day alone, to cover the electricity demands for a couple of hours, we as ratepayers spent $450 million. If you think about that for a minute, you multiply that out across that entire heat wave, which lasted several days, um, and you just compare that to what if California instead had invested $450 million in energy storage. Those storage technologies would provide value for the grid for 10 years, if not longer, and 365 days out of the year, not just what we, what we get when we go out on the spot market and pay uh, exorbitant price for electricity. So I think what we're wanting policymakers to do is realize you know, A, these events are gonna keep coming, B, we're electrifying, and so we're, we're kind of worsening the situation. So instead of relying on sort of the old way of doing things, let's take advantage of the modern technologies that we have at our fingertips and partner with consumers to do more than ask them to turn the lights off. Let's partner with consumers to deploy investments in clean energy, which consumers are already willing and ready to do. Well, let's talk about the progress that was made in the last couple of years. So in August in 2020, according to the numbers uh, on your on your website, California had 30,000 distributed batteries with the potential to discharge uh, 500 megawatts of power. So in the last couple of years, uh, 50,000 consumers have added 400 megawatts of, of uh, capacity and which is extraordinary uh, in and of its own right. But does it look like those trends are going to continue? Great question. That's a million dollar question or a billion dollar question as the case might be. So just so people aren't confused with all these numbers, we have in California, in addition to the 3000 uh, gigawatt or three gigawatts that you mentioned earlier that are utility scale energy storage 
projects that are important and are growing as well. But we have built through consumers adopting solar, and you're right, it's more than residential, they're primarily residential right now. Um, we have built a, another gig, another gigawatt are behind the meter energy storage batteries. That has all been built really in the last couple of years. And to give that sense of scale, you know, we had um, uh, we had about, as you, as you cited, 30,000 30, batteries in 2020, last time California had uh, a, a blackout um, with, a, with a 500 megawatts of total capacity in that battery, total power potential in that battery. We've added in just two years from August 2020 to September 2021, or 2022, sorry, uh, we added um, that additional, um, you know, um, uh, what is it, 50,000 batteries, as you cited, and another 400 megawatts of power potential. So that brings us up to 900 total megawatts of power um, stored in batteries uh, charged up by the sun. Um, and to give you a sense, we do see tremendous potential for growth. The million dollar kind of caveat to that is that the state right now, you know, as we speak when we're recording this interview, are poised to make drastic changes to the state's net metering law. Right now, net metering is what drives the adoption of both solar and storage. And if the state goes the wrong direction on this, where they're being pressured by the utilities to do this, they could choke off that market growth for both the solar panels and the batteries that they charge. So tremendous growth, sky's the limit if policymakers get the policy right, uh, but we could actually see the California market take a major nosedive in the next couple of months to years if uh, the policy goes wrong. What about the potential role of electric vehicle batteries? This is another area where California, of course, uh, leads the United States uh, in terms of uh, EV ad adoption. Uh, I know we're, we're just getting to the point where we're talking about integrating vehicles into, uh, into the grid. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, Ford CEO, Jim Farley, and he was talking about the, one of the, the biggest reasons not one of, sorry, the biggest reason aside from price that uh, consumers are buying the Ford F-150 Lightning is the ability to integrate it into their into their uh, uh, house's uh, electricity system and then be able to discharge in the case uh, when, if, there's, if there's a blackout. And are you anticipating over the next, I don't know, one, two, three, five years that that's going to be more common in California? Absolutely. I mean, when I, you know, I'm one of those early adopters that I have a solar system, I have a home battery, and I have two electric cars parked in the driveway. So there's no question that this is possible and is doable. And if I was faced with a prolonged outage, um, I would consider using my car battery to augment my, my garage battery. I think the thing, though, that and it's really exciting. And the Ford F-150's battery is even bigger than my, you know, little Chevy Bolt battery. And, you know, it's all really amazing progress. Um, the thing I think we want to make sure that policymakers and students of, of public policy understand, though, is what would be better for the California economy is to avoid blackouts in the first place. You know, some are unavoidable. There's, you know, a thunder and lightning storm and a, and a wind blows the lines down. You, you know, you have that backup power. Um, but we want to avoid blackouts such as what California has seen recently, which is just because we don't have enough supply. So we don't want to run to our Ford F-150 
every single summer because the temperatures get above 100 degrees. Um, and so what we want instead is to have grid tied and grid participatory batteries that are providing value for the consumer 360 days out of the year in terms of avoiding peak prices, right? And keeping the lights on when there's some winter storm. But then five days out of the year when we have these extreme weather events that they will keep happening for about five days out of the year, hopefully not longer, we would like to be able to use those batteries and tap into them as a grid resource and let the consumer get some compensation for it and have it be coordinated. It's a virtual power plant concept. If we do that, we will provide extra value for the consumer that's putting their own money into this public resource, essentially. We'll give utilities more tools to work with during extreme events, and we'll keep the lights on and you can just use that Ford F-150 you know, to go drive to the work site or whatever you need a truck that big enough <laughs> to go do. But, but that's, so it, it, it's, we don't wanna get into this place where we're kind of planning on problems and solving the problems for Ford F-150. We want the Ford F-150 to be tooling around wherever you need to go so you're not burning fossil fuels. Well, you mentioned virtual power plants, and I want to talk about that uh, because they did play a role uh, in in California's recent uh, uh, issues with its uh, power grid. So a virtual power plant, as I understand it, is a, uh, a company that aggregates uh, consumer storage and then feeds it into the grid and, and, and is responsible for, for receiving payment from the utility and then paying, paying the consumers. Uh, how, is that catching on? Uh, how popular is it? So um, it is not catching on because policymakers are keeping and the utilities are keeping it at bay. So we've got a couple pilot programs. Those pilot programs worked beautifully. So proof of concept happened last week. Um, Tesla, for example, um, had uh, several thousand batteries that deployed, I believe, 25 megawatts um, of power across that four or five hour uh, peak time time crunch. And the thing that's unique, and we had other companies that are members that, that did the same, you know, similar thing, they were part of these pilots. The thing that's unique about a virtual power plant is that that battery, similar to all of the batteries that we're talking about provided value for the consumer throughout the year, right? It was a battery, it was there for the consumer when they needed it. But the consumer volunteered and was you know, compensated for then letting the utility essentially take over and deploy their battery at the five minute increments that they needed it. So super, super exact down to the local level of where the, the, the utility pinpointed they needed some juice. That level of accuracy is, is, is incredible, right? I mean, that we can do this from the push of a computer button, deploy, you know, 4,500 batteries just in a pilot alone and get them to turn, you know, turn on the juice and, and, and feed back to the grid. Um, so it's really powerful, but it's held at bay by policy. So if I understand this correctly, because um, I didn't understand this about uh, uh, virtual power plants, it, it, the utility can actually say, okay, uh, this area of Bakersfield, a uh, place I used to live in California. Uh, Hot place. <laughs> yeah, it, indeed it is in, in the summertime. So in Bakersfield, there, there are these particular neighborhoods that are going to be short. And but we know we have a virtual power plant nearby, uh, and we can uh, we can actually target that electricity from that virtual power plant 
for those neighborhoods that are short. It's that's precise. Yes. Yeah. We know exactly where all the batteries are and we can communicate with them and we can deploy them. We could say this one goes at four o'clock and this one goes at six o'clock. Right. So you can, you can deploy them um, and that, in that level of detail. Um, that's a huge resource for the utility. I think one of the other important things to point out is this, while the utility tends that what the utilities want to do is they tend to want both complete control all the time, top down, you know, kind of thinking. Um, but they also really only kind of think about what they need right now. And one of the big points we're trying to get policymakers to embrace is you need to start deploying these distributed energy resources now so that you're ready for the potential blackouts in 2030. Like, don't be here in 2030 going, boy, I wish we had built some more batteries in Bakersfield. Wouldn't that have been nice? But at the time in 2022, we didn't really think we needed them. So this is like this, you know, chicken and egg problem that consumers are willing to put their own money into this technology because it provides value for them, them most of the time of the year. And we know we're going to need these resources in the years to come. There's no doubt. So that's what we, we need to get around that, that problem with public policy. Well, let's talk about public policy, because uh, I understand that the California Public Utilities Commission has uh, just recently created a CalFuse proposal, price signal based on real-time pricing linked to smart customer-owned resources through new enabling technologies. Could you explain that for us, please? That I would need my policy team uh, on to really explain, but it is something that we have been um, pushing uh, real-time pricing to really, truly unlock the value of batteries, right? And, and, tr and truly capture that. Right now, we've got those 900 megawatts in, sitting throughout in garages throughout California, and they remain largely unutilized um, by, by our utilities and by our grid. So this idea of applying real-time pricing so that if the price of electricity for one hour out of the year is extremely high, the consumer has the financial incentive to make sure that battery is ready to be deployed during that, that hour. That should, in theory, bring down the overall peak pricing for everybody so we all save. This is very experimental, it's brand new, and it's met with a lot of resistance because again, what we're talking about here in California is inverting the way in which energy is delivered and generated. So instead of it being just, you know, 10 power plants, you know, powered up, takes some hours to get ready to go, they're up and running and they're there. And the utility makes that investment and controls it for years to come. We're talking about inversing that relationship and having the customer providing the power. And the utility has to trust, you know, kind of get used to really kind of modern technology and deploying it. So it's it's a big mental, you know, block for a lot of utilities. Well, there's a lot of discussion within the industry and within the literature about distributed energy resource platforms where electricity is uh, so, uh, bought and sold and services are traded by, uh, you know, an un unlimited, in theory, I guess, an unlimited number of, of prosumers. And they, they could be as small as a house. They could be a, a big commercial operation that self-generates. It could be anything. And, and the utility might be that platform. Uh, it might be the independent system operator like Casio. It could be another, another party uh, set up specifically to do this. Uh, 
And it sounds like California, which is, I think, acknowledged as probably the, one of the leaders in, in policy development and market design and so on. But it sounds like California is taking hesitant steps towards creating those DER platforms. And it, it, is that a fair comment? Hesitant steps is a very positive way to describe it. We would say dragging our feet. You know, this is not some brand new concept. This is something we've had um, ready to go for a couple of years. And I guess in the climate of crisis, which is what California continues to be in every summer, we think that policymakers are dragging their feet when it comes to investing in distributed energy resources. Yes, there's some good proceedings open and some interesting pilots, but we remain in that pilot phase. And this is something the industry and the consumer base is ready to rock and roll on. And we have been for a number of years. We've seen this tremendous growth, which is only defined as tremendous when compared to zero, uh, but it's actually pretty minuscule when compared to the, the need um, in the state of California. So, you know, we're really bullish, uh, but we're pretty impatient and we're wanting our policymakers to, um, to put distributed energy resources more in the center of their policymaking and their thinking. Um, right now, it's a sort of a side dish. Why are policymakers that reluctant to embrace change? It's a great question. Um, I would say the number one reason in California is that our utilities, the investor-owned utilities in particular, their business model, their profit model is set up to benefit them every time they build more infrastructure. Distributed energy resources, by definition, reduce the need to build infrastructure and show there is a massive you know, collision there of interests. It's in the interest of the public to reduce infrastructure costs because that's gonna have an overall reduced, you know, a lowering rate on uh, cost, uh, pressure on rates. And it's in the interest of the public to provide resources that are gonna reliably generate electrons and avoid blackouts. But the utilities interest is to build more transmission lines and you know, more, more infrastructure, uh, which is prone to failure. So that is really the number one reason um, that we have so much friction in the system in California. Now, that jives with what I've been told by experts and in, in a few of the studies I've read. I mean, I think it's general, generally acknowledged that utilities are, are uh, conservative. They have a very conservative risk-averse kind of culture. And it's difficult to change those in a short period of time. And we see that, I mean, we see that all over all over Canada, particularly in those areas where the, uh, the utility is a provincially owned crown corporation and they have a monopoly. Uh, they're very reluctant to, to change. They're not even, uh, you know, a fraction of the, uh, as progressive as, uh, as California, if you can imagine. <laughs> uh, but the, so the question I guess becomes, uh, Bernadette, you know, the technology is changing. The requirements are changing. Climate change policy is is driving some of this change. This is, I mean, it's it's such a disruptive time in this industry. How then do policymakers? How then do groups like uh, like yours and and consumers get the utilities to 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 change? How do you do that? Well, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, 20 years ago, I I concluded that the, the feet dragging was because of that resistance to change and it's a cultural problem and, and it's kind of understandable, you know. Um, I actually don't think that anymore. I think it is a financial problem. It is a profit motive um, discord problem. And I think 
policymakers need to stop. Frank, I'm going to put it be really bluntly. Policymakers need to stop hiding behind climate change. Climate change is an obvious problem we need to work to solve, but continued blackouts is a policy problem. So policymakers need to own that and do what is difficult, which is make the utilities that are very, very powerful, spend a lot of money in, in politics. They need to stand up to them and say, you need to do your job. And your job is to approach this problem differently. This is what we've given you a monopoly to do. And um, that's a hard thing for policymakers to do, but the responsibility is right on their doorstep and they need to pick up and do it. Okay, so we've got a number of, play of institutional players in your system. You've got you've got the utilities, uh, most of whom are investor owned. You have got the uh, public uh, utility commission, uh, the regulator. Uh, you've got KCO, which is the independent system operator. I, I mean, you've and then of course you've got the policymakers. That's a lot of a lot of inertia, a lot of bureaucratic inertia to to overcome. So of those of that group. Are the policymakers or the politicians here? Are, are they the ones that are most amenable to being pressured to under you know to making to driving change? I guess, or is there somewhere else in the system where pressure can be applied to to drive change? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think at the end of the day, blackouts ultimately, right or wrong, um, are owned by the governor. So the governor is sort of blamed when there's a blackout and, you know, the governor is, um, you know, gotten get some credit when things stay smooth. So I think at the end of the day, it's up to the governor to really make sure that California is pointed in the right direction. The governor can exert influence on the legislature, on CalISO and on the CPUC and directly on the utilities. So it's, you know, our governors always have a lot of problems to deal with at any given time. So you're sympathetic to, to their situation, but, you know, obviously this problem is a top tier issue and it needs to be addressed. Um, so really it kind of, that's where the buck stops and where the leadership opportunity uh, lies. Well, let's talk about, about Governor uh, Gavin Newsom. Uh, he puts, he is a, a leader on climate change. Uh, he puts, he commits uh, public dollars, uh, a lot of them, uh, for electric vehicle adoption and, and other kinds of uh, climate policy. I would think that if there's anyone in the United States uh, at the state level uh, who could do what you're just describing needs to be done, it would be Gavin Newsom. Uh, is is he is he just talking a good game, but he's you know behind closed doors, he's a little more conservative than he is in public? Or is this problem just so big and intractable that it takes a lot of time and a lot of politics uh, to craft a solution to it? Both. I mean, I think climate change is such a huge issue. You could be a leader on climate change and never touch uh, the electricity grid with a 10-foot pole, right? I mean, you could mandate electric cars that, of course, are going to put a strain on the electric grid. But in the near term, there's not a repercussion of that. That's, you know, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. So, you can be a leader on climate change and not really deal with this issue. I think when blackouts happen or the near threat of blackouts, that's what makes it rise to the surface. And then it becomes less of a climate change issue and more of an electricity and grid management issue, which if not been your priority, it's hard to then grapple within one week's time. So I think you know Gavin Newsom is undoubtedly an, 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 a, a climate leader and we appreciate that. 
I think what we're saying is we need to make sure he is a clean energy leader and that embraces distributed energy resources along with, you know, he just pushed through the renewal of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant and he has promoted offshore wind and there's a lot of great utility scale renewable energy policies he's promoted. If you look at his last budget, 90% of the funds went to utility scale, including subsidizing transmission lines, not to go to distributed generation. So we should have been doing a million battery initiative like what we did in California in 2006 with solar panels. We should be spending billions of dollars incentivizing more of those batteries. We should have gigawatts and gigawatts of behind the meter batteries. Um, but instead, we're tacking those batteries with taxes and, and bad net metering policy and then not investing in them in our budget. So there's a real gap there in California. And I think we need that uh, leadership to, to come through. Well, Bernadette, this has been a fascinating discussion. You've given us a, a great insights into the complexity of the issue and where some of the sticking points are to solving this problem. Thank you very much for this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.